to Colossians chapter 3. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 4. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Paul writes, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you for the promises that are given here in your word. And as we come today, may they be words that give us hope and encouragement and promise. May they be words that cause us to think about things that are eternal and to live differently in this world. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. On July 20th, 1969, the first U.S. manned spaceship landed on the moon. It was an historic event, an incredible accomplishment, and it still is even today. And I wonder, those of you that were alive at that time, can you remember where you were when it happened? It was one of those moments where it was so significant and the media coverage of it was, you know, kind of round the clock following the journey of these men that were going to be landing on the moon. And I remember I was a ninth grader at that time. It was in the summer. I was at our county fair and I was sitting at a food stand eating a hamburger and watching this on a small black and white TV screen as people had brought that in. And a whole bunch of people around just kind of gathered in amazement watching this event. Neil Armstrong was the first man to step on the moon and he made that now famous statement, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And Buzz Aldrin was the second man to come out of the module and to take his step on the surface of the moon. Well, Buzz Aldrin many years ago shared his feelings about that event in an interview. And it was interesting to hear what he said. He talked about how long it, got, it took to get to that point. I mean, all of the rigorous training and the discipline and the years of education and preparation, along with all of the other astronauts. And initially, you didn't know who was going to be selected. And they had to go through all of these different kind of drills and training and preparation to be a part of this historic mission. And then he shared during the interview of a later emotional breakdown that he had and the slow, painful recovery. The crisis did not have anything to do with the moon or with space travel or weightlessness. What caused it? Over and over again, Buzz Aldrin kept saying that the breakdown resulted from the terrible disillusionment he felt after working so hard and achieving every goal that he had set for himself and finding it empty when it was over. Buzz Aldrin, his dreams, fantastic though they were, were not lasting enough. And his goals were not high enough. Buzz Aldrin is not alone in his feelings. There are many others who have experienced that too, whether it's in business or politics or sports. You can think of people that aspire to greatness as a politician and they arrive and they end up being a governor or a senator or even president. And then what? What comes next? 
Or you can think of athletes that work all their life to try to attain a goal. You know, this afternoon there's a football game going on and the Vikings have their hearts set on winning a Super Bowl. I hope they do, if only so that the media can stop talking about how they've never won a Super Bowl. (laughs) But what then? What then? Even if you win, what comes next? Is that all there is to life? Or what about an Olympic athlete who sets their heart on winning a gold medal and they achieve that? Where do you go from there? What happens next? You see, unless our life is built on a solid foundation, all the awards in this world will not satisfy us. doesn't matter what you accomplish unless your heart and life is built on a solid foundation. So what is your goal in life? What are you seeking? And will it satisfy when you achieve it? The scripture challenges us to set our goals high and to live our life in a way that is going to count for eternity. And that's what I'd like to talk about this morning from this passage of scripture. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, Paul challenges us to set our hearts on things above. We are to set our heart on things above. And it is a command. It's a command of Scripture. Uh, It's a strong word, and it means to seek or to pursue or to long for. You can go to the next slide. Um, and And it is actually a continuous action. In the New American Standard Version, it says, Keep seeking the things that are above. We are to continue to do this throughout our life. It's not just a one-time commitment that we have made to Christ, but there is to be this continual motivation and desire in our life to keep seeking heavenly things. What does that mean or what, what does that look like? It means, first of all, that we will place Jesus first in our life, first in our heart. That we make it our goal to please Him in everything that we do. And it means, secondly, that we will value what God values and we will love what He loves and we'll make it our desire to want to follow hard after Him. Jesus said that we are to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things, all of our daily needs will be given as well. And He called us too, and He said in Matthew 6.21 that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That where we place our treasure, what it is that we truly value is going to determine the direction of our heart and our attitude. So have we come to that point where we truly value what God values and desire what He desires in our life? And thirdly, we are to long for our heavenly home. Paul wrote in Philippians 3:14, he said, I press on toward the goal. To win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. We press on toward that goal that God has called us to. Why do we do these things? Well, Paul makes it clear that there is a change that has taken place in our life. We have been raised with Christ and we are already seated with Him in the heavenly places. And we know who we belong to. We belong to Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, since then, since these things have happened to you, since you have been raised with Christ already, united with Him in His death and resurrection, 
Now set your heart, set your affection on the things that are above. We belong to Christ. And Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And when you hear this in the context of what was going on in Colossae, where there were these false teachers who had come in and wanted to diminish Christ or say that, you know, he's just one of many different ways to God or he's just sort of this intermediary like the angels. He's not really God. Paul comes along and he says of Jesus that he is the Christ and he is seated at the position of power and authority at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He's the only way to God. And they understood that and they began to grasp what this meant in their life and they began to live differently as followers of Jesus Christ. That's what God calls us to as Christians. And in the same way that He calls us to set our heart on the things above, He tells us that we are to think about the things that are above. We are to think about what this means in our life. In verse 2 again, set your minds on things above, not earthly things. It's not that all earthly things are sinful. It's not that all earthly things are bad. But we just look at, at life differently. Because Christ has changed our heart, we begin to look at our priorities and how we spend our time, the things that we do, the things that we pursue. We look at all of that differently as a Christian. He is saying that we must not only seek heaven, we must think about what that means. For example, as a Christian, what are the things that are going to last for eternity? You know, we think about that. What is it that's going to last beyond this life? Well, it's God is going to last forever. He is eternal. His word is also eternal, he tells us. And people were made to last for eternity. We have an eternal soul. And everyone is going to be somewhere for eternity. And in some sense, all of the things that we do for Christ also have that ripple effect that will carry on into eternity as they impact other people. What happens to all the rest of it? What happens to all the rest of what we see in this world and that's a part of our life? Well, quite honestly, it's going to burn one day. It's all going to disappear. In Second Peter, the Bible actually answers that question and it shares the implications of what that will be like in that day. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 to 14, the Scripture says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. So there's going to be this great conflagration that's going to destroy this present earth as we know it. And so he says, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Well, you ought to look forward to and live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. And that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, Since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. I mean, Peter really lays it out there, doesn't he? That one day this world is going to be destroyed. God's going to put it to fire and it will be 
consumed or changed. And then he will make all things new, a new heaven, a new earth. We were created to live upon the earth, and one day we are going to live upon this new earth where God will also dwell with man. That's the picture at the end of Revelation when the new Jerusalem comes down to earth and God and man dwell together in this new creation. And there are implications of that. If that's what's going to happen and if only certain things are going to last for eternity, then it makes sense to me that I would live my life in a way that's going to count for eternity and maximize that. It means I'm going to care about the choices that I make. I want to live in a way that honors God. I want to be found spotless and blameless and at peace with Him when He comes. It means I want to help as many people as I know get there too. And to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ so that they might know Him for all of eternity. What's going to happen to us on that day? Well, In the future, there is a day coming when we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 5.10. The scripture says this, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for things done while in the body, whether good or bad. There's going to be that day when we will stand before Jesus and we'll give an accounting of our life. And to me, again, that is one of those very sobering pictures. What will that be like to stand before Him? And your whole life is reviewed. Every thought, every word, every deed, every action, all of your motives, He knows them perfectly. It's all there. And to go through that and to see that, and what will that feel like as we look at Jesus and He looks into our eyes? He tells us that he's going to put a match to our works or our deeds. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 to 15, the scripture says that he will test the quality of our works. By the grace God has given to me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, Paul says. And someone else is building on it. But each one, each one should be careful how they build. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And if any man builds on this foundation using gold or silver or costly stones or wood or hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and fire will test the quality of each man's work. And if what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss and he himself will be saved but only as one escaping through the flames. Boy, there's a lot there. A day comes, our works are going to be reviewed. Christ is in a sense here. He's going to put a match to it. If the things that we have done in this life were simply for self, for our own selfish gain, or just about us, you know, and hadn't thought about Christ or how we could influence others for Him or served Him, it's all going to burn. It's going to be gone. You might have a relationship with Christ, but if you didn't do anything with that relationship really in terms of serving Him, you'll be like that person at the end where it says He Himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. But come to a point where you stand before Jesus and there'll be nothing to give to Him as an offering, nothing to give by way of thanks in terms of what He had done in your life. How sad would that be? How sobering would that be? 
But on the other hand, if we have given our life to Christ and sought to follow Him and we have honored Him with our time or we've tried to do the best that we could in terms of following Jesus with all our heart, we understand that we have sinned and we have fallen and we confess our sin to Him and we get up and we go again and we take those steps of obedience as best as we can. And by His grace, He uses us to have an impact on the lives of other people then those things will come through and they'll be like gold and silver and precious stones. And there will be an offering to give to Jesus. And those who have done that well, when they stand before Him, will hear those words of Jesus when He says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. And He invites us to enter into the joy of His kingdom. What a tremendous honor and praise that would be. You know, you think about that. You think about earthly rewards, heavenly rewards. You know, earthly rewards, yeah, it's fun to compete. It's fun to win a prize or it's fun to do well in our work and it's fun to, you know, improve our skills and be the best that we can be. But those things pale in comparison to honoring Jesus Christ and to living for that day. And to be able then to somehow see that connection in our life and then to be able to do everything we do as unto the Lord, that's where the gain is and that's where the joy comes. Whether it's our work or our recreation or our relationships, our marriage, our family, that everything we do, we do as unto the Lord. That honors Him. And Christ becomes a part of every area of our life. You know, and what I'm sharing here, this is just for the believer. For the unbeliever, that day will be the loss of everything. And it will mean eternal separation from God in hell. You know, I've been looking at the pictures this week, as you have, of what's gone on in Haiti. The terrible devastation in Port-au-Prince. And just the... Uh, feeling of hopelessness that those people have, that they had very little to start with, and yet now they have lost everything. And they are looking for food and water and those basic things of life. They're looking for medical care for those that are injured. And it is a terrible situation when you have 2 million people, perhaps 3 million people, that are displaced because of this natural disaster that took place. But I think about the eternal loss of the unbeliever who comes to that point in their life and now they are well aware that all of this that they have heard about Christ and they have tried to push aside or not believe or reject or deny, now they see the reality of it. And this sobering feeling of eternal loss comes over them. What will that day be like? It's why Jesus said, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his own self? What good would it be to achieve the highest honors in this life if it means nothing and you do not know Christ? It's why Jim Elliott, that young man who was a missionary to the Alka Indians and who died trying to bring the gospel to that native indigenous people, It's why he wrote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The Christian who gives up 
things in this life for the sake of Christ is not a fool because he is striving to gain what he cannot lose, what will last for eternity. So what does this mean for us? What are the practical implications again? It means, first of all, that Christ must come first in my life. It means that everything I do, I do for Him. It means that I strive to honor Him and to know Him better. And secondly, it means that when I look at my life and I think about my work or my calling, my work is a part of my ministry. I mean, ministry isn't something that you just do at church or you just do on occasion when you volunteer. But because Christ is a part of our life, then everything we do is to be done as unto the Lord. And if we can't do our work as an offering to God and we can't see how He could use our vocation, I think we need to change our job. I mean, I think that what we do has to be done as unto the Lord. Whether you are a teacher or a businessman or woman or you're involved in a community activity or you're participating in groups that are part of our area in which we live. If you can't do that as unto the Lord, then I think you need to think about that seriously. How could Christ use you to be a witness for Christ, to influence others or to point others to Jesus as their Savior and Lord? And we realize that our time, our talents, our treasure all belong to God and are to be used as He directs. And when we participate with Him in His work, the ripple effects of that are going to resound for all of eternity. I get excited about that. You know, a few weeks ago, at the end of the year, we received this letter from Camp Shamanah, the Evangelical Free Church camp in Minnesota here. And a number of you have had children that have gone up there, and you've gone up there maybe for a men's retreat or a women's retreat or something like that. Well, they had a need this year. They were $40,000 short, wanted to finish the year in the black, and so they sent out a letter to area churches. We took an offering here. It was a short notice. We just announced it on a Sunday morning. And and many of you uh, put in something in that offering. It came to $783. We sent that off to Shamina. A week ago, we got a letter back from them saying how very, very grateful and thankful they were. And because of what God did through our church and other churches that responded and individuals who gave, they finished the year $2 in the black. Just $2 in the black. <laughs> but when you think about that, I mean, isn't that, isn't that really cool? You know, it's just like God knew. And, you know, everybody didn't need to give, but He touched the hearts of some who did give, and they participated in that. And it was enough. It was exactly enough for what they needed. And it always amazes me over and over again how God does, does that. And how He can use our gift. And when we give and we participate, I mean, just like the Gideon offering today, you know, you give, you buy a Bible. You don't know how God's going to use that. But He will. And it's our participation in these kind of works that bears fruit for eternity. Every year at Shamina, hundreds of kids come to know Christ as their Savior and Lord. Other kids make recommitments, come back to Christ. or That's where kids are trained. And many of those students that share in the ministry up there go on into full-time work or become leaders in local churches in the future. What a great training ground that is for students in ministry. 
When you give, you share in the work. When you give to the work of the Gideons, and those Bibles are shared all over the world, God uses that. And you become a part of the work, and the same thing happens when you give to the church. And it is just so cool. And one day when we stand before Christ in eternity, those things that we don't even know yet, I believe we will see the ripple effects of how God used our life to touch others all along the way. So why do we do all of this? We do it because we have died to our old way of life. We have been changed. And we are now united with Christ. And that's what Paul says. We died and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. And I I love the way that he says that. I mean, think about it. Our life is now hidden with Christ in God. It's hidden. There's this spiritual life that we know, we sense, we feel the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. If you've come to know Christ as your Savior and Lord, you know it. You can tell God has made a difference in your life. And there is that assurance of salvation that comes when you hear His voice speaking to you and you see the change that He has made. And He says that life is hidden, though. The world doesn't see it and understand it. It's secret in a sense. But you know it. And do you want to know how secure your relationship is that we are hidden in Christ, in God? There's a double security there, the way he words it. Our life is hidden with Christ. We are in Christ, and Christ is God, and He is in God. And so if we are vitally related to Him, then we have the life of Christ in us, and we are secure. And there's a change that takes place. Many years ago, Mickey Rooney, the uh, famous actor, You know him from some of the older movies that you have seen. He was always kind of crass and crude, and he was often drunk when he would do interviews. He lived a pretty rough life. He was often angry and insulting to people. But this particular interviewer that day knew that something had happened to him, and he questioned Rooney about his recent past when he had hit bottom emotionally and financially late in his life. And Rooney calmly answered, and he said, I don't mean to sound ecclesiastical, but recently I gave my life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and now my past is gone. There came a point in his life when he looked on all of those things as worthless and shameful, and he gave it all to Christ, and he was changed. You know, I think more recently of a man like Lee Strobel. You know him as an author of The Case for Christ. He's a pastor, a teacher. wasn't always that way. Very different life. He said, how can I tell you the difference that God has made in my life? Well, let me give you an example. My daughter Allison was five years old when I became a Christian. And my daughter, all she had known of her dad was that her dad was often profane and angry. I remember times when I would come home angry and he'd be yelling at the family. I came home one day, he said, you know, and I just kicked a hole in the wall. I was so angry about things. I'm ashamed to tell you how many times my daughter would hide in her room just to stay away from me. And five months after I gave my life to Jesus Christ, that little girl went to her mommy and said, Mommy, I want God to do for me what he did for Daddy. I want God to do for me what he did for Daddy. And he's going five years old. 
I mean, she hadn't studied the archaeological evidence to support the historicity of the Bible. I mean, she hadn't taken a course on apologetics. All she knew was that her dad, who was so very, very angry, had changed. And God had done a work in his life. And if God could do that for him, she wanted that too. That's the change that he makes over and over again in people's lives. Christ destroyed the power of sin in our life so that we could be free and forgiven. And the new life that we have is nothing less than the life of Jesus Christ in us. That's why Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And then thirdly, what does it mean to set our heart on things above? It means that we look forward to the day of Christ's return. One day, the secret's going to be revealed. The world doesn't get it now. It doesn't understand why you live for Christ. It doesn't understand why you would say no to certain things or why you look at life differently. It doesn't understand maybe why you would be so actively involved in a church or missions or why you would give so generously and freely of your wealth to things that aren't going to benefit you per se. They don't see that. And even... For those of us who do know Christ, we can only imagine what that day will be like. We walk by faith and not by sight. We don't see all of what it's going to be like on that day when Christ will return and we will be with Him. But one day we will see Him face to face and we will know. And when He appears, Paul says, then we will appear with Him in glory. When Christ appears, we will appear with Him in glory. And His coming will be openly displayed for all the world to see. It will be like pulling back the curtain on a stage and all this that everybody's been waiting for and anticipating is going to be revealed and we'll see it. And we'll see what we have been waiting for and longing for all of our life. C.S. Lewis described it like this in the Chronicles of Narnia in the last battle. He was talking to the children and the children were concerned... means sent home again. They didn't want to be sent home. They had enjoyed their times in Narnia and they were feeling like that time had come again when Aslan, this Christ figure, was going to send them home. And then he tells them what has happened. And he says that there was a real railway accident. And your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream has ended, and this is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. And now at last they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. I wish I could write like that. I can't, but I can read it and share it with you. And I love that. To think about this life, it's like the cover and the title page. It's just the beginning. 
The great story is yet to be written of what that's going to be like to be with Christ in a new heaven, new earth for all of eternity. The reality of that. The joy of that. Man, that changes the way that we live today once we get it and we understand it. So we set our hearts on things above. Our affection, our desire, our goal. And we think about what that means for our life. And we live differently in the world today. We live in light of eternity. And we long for the day when Christ will return. And He will make all things new. Let's pray. Father, what tremendous promises these are. Open our eyes to see the truth of Your Word. Open our eyes to see and understand what you have for us in eternity. And Father, help us to put that into practical application every single day. To live not for the dot of this life, but for the line of eternity. And to give ourselves wholeheartedly and freely to the Lord's work. Because we want to honor you and we want to know you better. And we want our lives to count for eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen to these words of Scripture as we go. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you, but always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen? Amen.